In this episode, we talk about two movies, which I realized after listening back probably need more context. We talk about Midsommar, which was written and directed by Ari Aster, released in 2019. It's described as a folk horror film, and um, this is the synopsis from IMDb. A couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. <laughs> we also talk about Cannibal Holocaust, which was directed by Ruggero Diodato, originally released in 1980, about an anthropologist who leads a rescue team into the Amazon rainforest to locate a crew of filmmakers who had gone missing while filming a documentary on local cannibal tribes. When the rescue team is only able to recover the crew's lost cans of film, an American television station wishes to broadcast the footage as a sensationalized television special. Upon viewing the reels, Monroe is appalled by the team's actions and objects to the station's intent to air the documentary. That was from um, uh, Wikipedia. This movie is famous for a few reasons. There are some real animal deaths graphically shown in the film, so just a heads up about that. Um, and the gore was so realistic for its time that Diodato was formally charged with murder, so he had to prove that his cast was actually still alive, which he did, of course, because they were. The film was still, though, banned in Australia, the US, Norway, Finland, Iceland, New Zealand, Singapore, and several other countries in or before 1984. In this podcast, we talk about a lot of different subjects that may be considered disturbing to the listener. Um, we mention suicide, and we talk about death a lot. I mean, it's an episode about horror films, so sure, that makes sense. But I did want to give you the heads up. Um, thanks for listening. I'm Jess Fisher, and this is the best paper I ever wrote. My name is Marshall Dylan Schaefer. I am a non-binary male presenting person of color. Lovely, lovely. So how do we know each other? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, uh, definitely. It, it was definitely during like the initial rise of TikTok that I found your content and mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this person's cool. I think and... it was like early 2019. Yeah, because it's when I started I started posting TikToks like December of 2018 and I posted it like halfway through 2019 and I was just like, I'm done with this. But <laughs> during that time, I actually got to meet like some cool people and you're the only person who I really stayed in contact with. So yeah, it is kind of funny. Um, I believe you commented on my Kim Possible video and then a few other ones and like you I only had I only had like five thousand followers at the time and you were like a consistent fan of my stuff and then I just decided to stalk you on social media and I was like, This person seems really cool. Yeah, and then also it's sort of like when I saw that you were an actress and you were really into yards, I was like, Oh damn, that's mm -hmm. so cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool that we connected because we have a lot more in common than I even realized, even just reading your essay. Um, mm -hmm. So where did you grow up and where do you live now? I was born in Houston, Texas, but I primarily grew up in Los Angeles, California, in the San Fernando Valley, a little town called Van Nuys. Um, so from like two to 18, I was living there and then went off to undergrad. And then two years in undergrad, my family moved out here to New York City. 
So ever since then, I've been living out here jamming on the opposite side of the country. <laughs> so your family moved after you went to school? Did they did they move because you went to school in the East? Um, yeah, my mom was, uh, well, she, we, she originally moved to L.A. Um, because she was a soap opera actress and she got a couple of gigs out there. And then after she retired from the arts life, she became a teacher and then rose the ranks to become like an assistant principal at an art school. Um, and then after that drove her properly insane, she <laughs> retired that and then decided to move back to New York. Wow, I did not know that. That is really, really interesting. Um, so <laughs> where did you go to school and what did you study? Um, for undergrad? Uh, for undergrad and then for grad. So undergrad, I went to Princeton University and I was an anthropology major with my minors in theater and dance. And now I'm at NYU Tisch with a graduate musical theater writing program. Which is another hilarious connection that we have. Like that's the world being so tiny. Like you you weren't going to NYU grad musical theater writing like when we yeah. met. Just tiny world, tiny itty bitty <laughs> world. So what is the title of the essay that we are discussing today? The title of this essay, <laughs> my undergrad senior thesis, um, is The World of Horror Movies, an Anthropological Exploration of the Fictional Horror Genre. Beautiful. And what class was it for? It was actually just so I can graduate. Um, at, for Princeton University, at the end of your four years, especially if you're in um, like the liberal arts, then you have to write a full thesis paper that you're just writing continuously all year long. Oh, so do you do that? So it's not, do you, but you have like an advisor that you check in with? Is that how it works? Yeah, you have an advisor you check in with, but it's more just sort of like, it's a requirement for graduation. Oh, know? do you take classes your senior year as well? Or is it just this thesis? Oh, you, you take classes still. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how did you choose this topic specifically? So for the anthropology department, they really like to have um, a lot of in-person interaction. I mean, that's the nature of anthropology. You go into the field, you study these cultures, and you um, interact, and you like try to like, figure out what's the deal with them. I mean, that's typically what, the what anthropology is, understanding all these different human societies and cultures. Um, from an uh, in-person account. Well, I had a very traumatic experience about being in the field right before I declared being an anthropology major where I was in Indonesia for an entire month and I did not like it. First off, I'm not, I'm not good speaking with people I don't know, you know? Like that social anxiety and also totally. like, ooh, it was not cute so i kind of was always like don't make me talk to people like if i talk to people make it kind of like a low-key thing or make it kind of like a controlled environment um and originally i was kind of dealing with like the year before i was looking into like the anthropology of sex work and whatnot sort of like looking at how um looking at the history of it as well as looking at how social media has influenced the nature of sex work oh wow now 
to give some kind of context, this was before OnlyFans became a thing. So <laughs> it was like, okay. So it was like, I, as right. soon as I finished it, I sent it in, got it graded. Next thing you know, OnlyFans came out and I'm like, well, okay. May, I was like considering like, okay, do I want to follow up on this topic? But then um, mm. I saw Ari Aster's film that, um, that summer, the summer of 2019, Mid to Mar. And for those who are not aware, it's essentially a bunch of anthropology grad students attending uh, small communities, <laughs> Mitsumar festivals. So I was like laughing after sort of seeing how honest Ari, like Ari Aster was being to the field of anthropology. And it's like, it's an it's a different kind of thing when you're like okay it's like it's like the, when you're seeing a horror movie and you're like don't go in there <laughs> but when it's specifically towards your academic field then you're just kind of like what are you doing you are violating several codes of ethics right now right it's it's a whole other level of like he's right behind you it's like uh oh dear god no um so it yeah. was like you you saw the movie and you felt so connected to it that that's how you it led to that. Were were you a horror fan before you saw that movie? Oh, I could not handle the horror genre for shit. Ha <laughs> ha! Wow, <laughs> that's really funny. That's really funny. I want to hear about you being in the library, being in the dorm. But oh my gosh, you were also not because of COVID, right? <laughs> yeah, so wait, COVID. you graduated. You were finishing your thesis when COVID happened, when school shut down. So yeah, let's let's talk about what the research was like and then we'll circle back. <laughs> um, yeah, first off, the research was very much like, okay, look into what is the history of anthropology and horror movies. What's that relationship like? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of times where the two fields will like connect. I mean, so, like sort of another kind of, feel that's a little more scientific and a little more but at the same time has some of the same properties to anthropology in my in my personal opinion i feel like i might i might piss some people off um <laughs> archaeology is definitely like archaeology that's one way to research cultures but in sort of a pathway where you look at what evidence sure you're, that makes sense to me yeah where you look at some evidence of these these cultures that were and then try to like understand it through what remnants we have mm -hmm. so um the research was find as many books as possible that talk about sort of hollywood and how hollywood treats death how uh we s relate to horror movies how horror movies relate to the field of like globalization um anthropology how do we understand different cultures and it's like of course you're definitely going to tackle like these themes of xenophobia being used as literary devices sort of like because they these people are an other and because you are an environment that is unknown to you automatically that's going to be cause of danger and for an audience that can be like unfamiliar territory i don't know what to expect Oh, that's interesting to me that you talk about um, the otherness and the fear of the unknown, because I have a friend who is a big horror fan, horror guy, and sometimes I'll, like, I have said to him on a number of occasions, I'm afraid of the dark. And he says, no, you're afraid of the unknown. 
And I'm like, it's, what it's, a horror it's, guy I'm, thing I'm, to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm terrified but of it's the dark. So true. I'm like, I'm that type of person who, as soon as I turn off all the lights in my studio apartment, I run for my bed. And I'm like, I know every inch of my apartment, but right. I always feel like if I ever open my eyes in the dark, there's going to be someone standing at the foot of my bed. Oh my gosh, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I was I was not a horror person at all until fairly recently. I mean, I had seen Hereditary, I had seen Midsommar, like I, I had engaged with it, but I wouldn't call myself a horror person. And then I became close friends with a horror person. I say horror because uh, instead of horror, <laughs> you know what I mean? Horror It's because you're from horror. Jersey's. Huh? It's your, you're a Jersey girl. Well, it's that, but it's also like it's a voice and speech thing. Because last year I did um, a tour of a kid's show where we did The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and um, mm. Edgar Allan Poe. And when you're on stage, you have to say horror because the children, because it was a kid's show, will be like, she said whore, you know? So it has to be horror. <laughs> anyway, that was a side note. But I, 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 I'd be the type of person to always be like, look at one kid in the eye, horror. <laughs> Just, Just see to if they react. Them. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I wasn't really a horror person. Um, and then I got to know this, this friend of mine um, during COVID. And I found myself being really, really attracted to horror during this time because of some force unknown and then i read a couple of articles um that say suggest that like there's a business insider article that says the top movie genres watched in the pandemic have been horror like horror and thrillers and there have been yeah. a lot of studies trying to figure out why that is um and there was a study from the university of turku in finland that took a look at how viewers processed fear when watching the 100 best and scariest horror movies and it suggested that so suggested a couple of things it suggested that it safely simulates dangerous situations so um people there's part of the brain that gets satisfied by the acting out of dangerous situations so like how would i get out of this house um how would i run away from this person how would i do this that and the other you know so it's a survival thing innate in our brain that is satisfactory. But also it suggests that it helps us relieve pent-up tension because it makes our feelings of anxiety and fear concrete. So during this pandemic, a lot of people felt fear that wasn't necessarily justified by something tangible. So it was like, I'm afraid of this disease, but nobody around me has it. Not, like, let's say in the beginning, like maybe you didn't know somebody personally that had it and it felt like almost like an irrational fear and so when watching these scary movies you were able to relieve this anxiety by saying like i'm afraid this inside feeling in my body i'm afraid and it's manifesting and being afraid of that man with a chainsaw and guess what at the end of the movie she's safe so people got to like make make their fears concrete and then satisfy them so I thought that this this is a perfect essay to write during that time. Did did you find yourself more attracted to horror movies when you were doing this research because of COVID? Well, I mean, I so to describe the thesis writing process of Princeton University, especially through the anthropology department, you are it's like as soon as you get on campus at your senior year or you are writing it. Right. Sometimes so this was kind of in the works starting like the summer before for me. And that way I could get like a head start. So when I needed to start like turning in little things here and there, I could. 
well, first off, you were completely like that is completely correct that people will watch horror movies. Um, in my paper, I talk about how it was during um the fall of my senior year. I took an online class through the Sundance Collab program, um, that was all about horror and psychological thriller screenwriting. It was taught by Scott Kosar, and he wrote this movie, The Machinist. He wrote the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, oh, okay. And he told us that first class, like, three things. Horror stories are as old as storytelling itself. The best horror films reflect what occurs in our sociopolitical worlds. And fear of the unknown is one of the oldest emotions and is tied to the universal human experience. And it's sort of when you were talking to me, what hit my head was, because you and I both are in the performing arts. That's kind of like, yeah. why do we go musicals? We, go, we musicals, go musicals. We go musicals for a sense of escapism. Okay. Because sort of like there is a like a romanticization of life through musical theater, where you have song, you have dance, you can take these moments that can be bigger that are bigger than life and they feel bigger than life and then you show what that will look like sort of in a background way uh one of my other than being now being a lyricist book writer and semi-composer a lot of my training was musical theater choreography so what i did was often try to find a way to enhance emotion during certain things it's like um, they always say uh, for musical theater, like one of the biggest rules is if when you can't talk to you about your emotions in that moment, you sing. And I was taught that when you can't sing, you dance. Right. Yeah, I learned that in musical theater school, too. <laughs> yeah. And it's all about how do you incite the emotion of a character? How do you incite the emotion of an audience? How do you incite like these kind of, yeah, it's always tied to emotion. Yeah, it, it brings out the emotion. So it's almost like we like the extremes of genres. We like the extremes of feeling, mm -hmm. which which will go into song, right? So like the musical theater version is like, I love feeling, I, I love stories about love so much that I love when they start to sing about love. <laughs> That's how much Correctly. they love it. Yeah. Where whereas with horror, it's like I love to enact my fear so much that I enjoy this masochistic performance of it. It's it's about the emotion coming out of us. It's Is that all what you're trying to say? It's yes, kind of, but also on top of that, it's sympathy and empathy. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I get that. The best sort of example I remember um, Kosar thinking of was Dracula was was written in response to like growing thoughts on sexuality female sexuality really because you have like this very pale person who is like there who can like seduce women okay and how they would be in danger because they were being so easily seduced oh oh so what like it was written by it was written by men as a fear of oh oh i see as a fear of showing women's weakness of seduction? I'm not understanding. Yeah, I, I like, I, okay. It has <laughs> been like over a year since I've taken this class. Sure. And the past year has felt like five years. It has, All sure. contained. <laughs> um, I think if I could sort of draw into one of the movies that I actually 
All right, one of the movies that I mentioned and I was going to include, but I didn't. Um, King Kong. Okay. King Kong is the story of this great beast. I don't want to call him monster because that sort of automatically has a connotation mm-hmm. that is tied to it. Um, King Kong is this great beast who lives on this island. He's worshipped as a god. But when you have these white filmmakers come in, they see him as sort of like this. Uh, you see, you see him as a commodity. Mm-hmm. They see him as like a freak and a wonder and a monster. Of that, but also primarily a commodity. So when he's captured, and but he's oh, well, first off, he's soothed by the white woman, which <laughs> that has there are some implications. <laughs> There are implications. I like both in the new one, which was expertly made, and the old one, which has its issues, but still interesting. Yeah. How, um, I mean, the old one had its implications of of the white pure woman right. being the only thing that can soothe King Kong's anger, but at the same time, you have in this one, in the newer version, like how the white woman is able to sort of connect to the emotional side Mm. of King Kong and it's like at first you have the instant fear of these are tribal people who will willingly sacrifice another uh, like another human who is pure innocent like we're looking at we're looking at Midsummer we're looking at um, Cannibal Holocaust in that same sort of grouping of storytelling yeah and then you kind of realize that no, this great beast is a thoughtful one. Mm-hmm. And I remember that's like, I'm trying to remember the director of the second King Kong, uh, um, Peter Jackson. Oh, yeah. Peter Jackson, he uh, talks about how he wanted to really show King Kong as this emotional and thoughtful creature, mm-hmm. which sort of like, and then you have all these sort of talks about how do like Americans witness the other. So sort of in the same way of sure. Dracula being like Dracula, that's like how do you create a reality around your fears of what a world will look like? How does how can you tell the story of the commodification of people who don't look like you? into a story about a great animal, into a horror movie. Right, right. That's that's interesting to me. So when I, now now I'm thinking about, um, I'm, I'm diving into like the, the content of the essay. When, when you talk about the, um, the empathy that the director or writer tries to um, make the audience feel for the other, um, I'm thinking of like, so so it can it can be seen as problematic as the um the other is seen as like I, I okay, so I'm thinking about Midsummer and Cannibal Holocaust, right? So so Yeah, let's talk okay. about it. First things let's first Let's talk about the culty movies. <laughs> first of all, um Cannibal Holocaust. It's just funny because I um it was I wanna say it was like April or May and I was watching uh um The Last Drive In. Do you know The Last Drive In? I'm actually unfamiliar with it. Okay, it's um Gosh, I'm I'm gonna get punched in the face for not knowing. Um, it's oh Joe Bob, Joe Bob and the Last Drive-In. It's um it's a Friday night 
show on um, Shutter Network, and Shutter, it's nice, yeah, yeah, and it's like um, it does a double feature of like B movies, quote unquote. But this specific time, they were showing a high quality um, stream of Cannibal Holocaust, and I had been like I had heard of it because I was like. I don't like sometimes I'm a Gemini and I just like go down these like paths of research and like learning about um, communities completely isolated that um, like no quote unquote civilized um, communities have entered successfully and and, like survived just like out of curiosity. Right. And then I, I remember one time going down that deep rabbit hole and learning about Cannibal Holocaust and learning that it's like really hard to find a good stream of it and I never wanted to watch it. So then this was like on Shudder and I was like, oh my mm-hmm. God. And then I watched it and I was like, I hate this. Oh. <laughs> I was like, this is awful because well, like it's the, the scoring is amazing in its own way, but I was like, I want to jab out my eardrums. Um, and mm-hmm. of course there's, there's the animal abuse, animal torture, animal murder animal you mean pretty much yeah yeah, it's... yeah like and it's it's famous for those reasons but i i understand the the value of it and i understand the the purpose that they were trying to do but when i think about the way that the director writers of cannibal holocaust and midsummer um portrayed the other it i would say that midsummer does a better job of um making the audience feel empathy for the other and um like the good for her and everything but you're still like you know the 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 kills in that movie are pretty dramatic um and i mean the moment of the sacrifice of the death um with the rock and all that is pretty dramatic and i think cannibal holocaust really doesn't show the tribes as people very much either the only time you really feel empathy for them is when they're on fire but i mean but then that's another thing to sort of talk about like how does an audience perceive what is the other? Because sure. that's kind okay. of... I think that <laughs> definitely that shit was intentional. Yeah. Because here's the thing. You have... um, It's because you're in... It's Sweden versus the Amazon. You have like the Swedish... The Swedish commune that's isolated. That's not... It's not even... They're not even isolated really because a part of their... Like, upbringing, you have to, like, go out into the world, explore what it is. It's like, isn't that, like, a thing in the Amish, tra- tra- like Amish traditions? Oh, like, when, when like, uh, I think it's when you're 16. Can't speak words right now. Uh, um, maybe yeah. you're 19, you go out and you, like, spend a year on your, like, outside of the community, and then you decide whether or not you're going to come back. I actually just listened to an American Life, This American Life on that. But um, Yeah, um, yeah, so there's that tradition within um, Amish communities, and... Which, <laughs> I, I I honestly like that. I think that's I interesting. Think that, I think that it's like, yeah, you have to explore what this world is. I mean, that's kind of anthropology. Explore mm. what the world is. Um, but sort of like on the other hand, um, it, it Amish, like the way that, you know, we hear from the Amish, it's like it's a choice if you want to come back. And that's like what I vibe with. For um, the Harja, uh, they it seems more like oh you go out for your for like a fourth of your life and then you come back you come back with um, a better understanding of the world hmm. and it's like kind of like but at the same time since you're in that you're in this environment where there is so much accepted death then that kind of is like 
okay, why not just go back? Right. Right. So that that reminds me of the the section of your essay. So the the way you're talking about it makes me think about um the horror of death with um arguably American society, I guess. Um and the the horror of that that goes along with like the the theory of death denial. So um uh, like, death denial. Yeah, that uh. was a really interesting section for me. So so um want to talk about like is is it an American value death denial and what is it? It's more Western, I Western, believe. Western, sure. Yeah. I mean, death happens. And that, that's solid truth. And, you know, it's like you have, you see a bunch of, it's not, and here's the thing about sort of sadness relating to death, to, to, to despair relating to death. It's not, it's like not only an American concept, it's not, but it's like not only a human concept. I remember mm. sort of like there are these studies on, I think, well, elephants definitely feel death hmm. in the way that we do, where it's like if we witness death of a loved one, then it hurts. I mean, sort of like uh, death denial. So death denial is this theory that we are unable to sort of, that we shun death. Like for all your listeners who, are, who have not read, have not re like, who have not read this, uh, hundred page fucking essay. <laughs> um, I mean, that was kind of like, that's another story of how of like why I chose to have my introduction to be thirty pages so I can introduce so many concepts. But um, death denial was this concept of we like to hide away our death. I mean, we have these hospices, we have retirement homes, mm -hmm. and it's a way to sort of like isolate those who are dying. Um. And then um, another part that I thought was sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But the, go ahead, go ahead. I yeah. was gonna say the 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 thing that I found very interesting is like the Western fascination with youth as as a part of death denial. So like people being afraid to age, people being um, like even media being obsessed with young people, like movies and and shows about high schoolers and stuff, as an aspect of death denial of pretending that we're never gonna die. Oh, let me. So three instances, <laughs> three instances that I would want to talk to you to talk about. Um, sure. First one, um, in the beginning of my essay, in my introduction, the first movie, like one of the first movies that I really mention when it comes to this notion of like horror is Bridge to Terabithia. Sure. Now, people of my generation who saw that, um, I feel like we all kind of were like, wait, kids can die? <laughs> that's Whoa. a really good point yeah and that was really like shocking for me, that to was me. um my girl do you know that movie oh yeah my girl yeah that was yeah. for me i think kids can die i think that was it for me and now we have m more horror movies that really look at this thing this hereditary. concept of hereditary and a quiet place oh so true kids yeah. can die kids can die i mean it was just me and my partner, we were looking at, we were watching this new Netflix move, horror movie called um, Vampires vs. the Bronx last night. And was it have good? Three... Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> like, I, I, I would recommend it. I, okay, I, cool. I enjoyed it because it's, you have a primarily POC cast and it talks about like the issues with gentrification, oh, race relations um, through a very 
entertaining medium. Like, I would definitely recommend it. We're not sponsored by it. I'm just wanting to make that clear to any of your listeners. Um, but sort of like the main characters are these three kids. And and I was like, okay, at no point do I feel like these kids are in danger. Even oh, though yeah. they're yeah, fighting sure. vampires, which, you know, it's like obvious in a movie called Vampires vs. the Bronx. Even when they're fighting um, vampires, I never feel they're, they're in danger. Mm-hmm. Um. But then you have anything that Ari Aster does, and I'm just like, no one's safe. <laughs> oh, God. Sure. Um, and also, another good movie that I would say feel, like makes you feel like the kids are in danger uh, um, is Bird Box. Bird Box. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, um, you and I are both um, like, playwrights and yeah. one of the first short plays that I got produced was this entire play that comically looked at the history of cosmic horror looking at HP Lovecraft looking at oh, wow. the thing looking at um bird box and all because it's such a genre that really you need to like you can't see what you're afraid of and you can't be able to describe what you're afraid of hmm. so that kind of like puts you in a weakened more vulnerable position right so when we're talking about like death denial as as part of just the the western psyche right um something that we we just pretend that we're not going to die that makes the horror of these cultures even more prominent i guess the horror of these cultures but at least the uh, makes the otherness more prominent so in midsummer it's and both and in cannibal holocaust they're both and you know what in the purge movies too all all of those movies um one of the discomforts of the viewer one of the many discomforts i'm sure is that these are communities these are cultures that are comfortable with death which we are not i i would yeah. i would argue and i don't think people would disagree with me <laughs> um we are comfortable like as i say we are comfortable with death only if it's through media okay um yeah in the sense of we watch violent video like movies violent tv shows uh-huh. um one of one of my i mean we, we violent movies violent tv shows um video games mm-hmm. i'm a big gamer so i'm like into that kind <laughs> right. so i like like to kill an enemy that's like okay i, I can do, handle that um i also play a lot of D. there's a lot of violence in that right um but it's like only when you are encountering like death in real life in real person that's kind of when it's like oh this is getting way too extreme because it's happening right in front of you right um and it always hits a little differently i mean sort of like my father always said uh growing up he's like you know the older you get the more the more weddings you go to and then the le- and then you get even older that means the less weddings you go to the more funerals you go to right. but like right now i have a lot more friends dying because of just like what this world is right then i have a lot more friends getting married which is kind of like i look at i like said to my dad i'm like i'm not sure it kind of feels like you know more funerals are happening right are happening right now yeah yeah that's that's interesting it's it's almost like so the these death numbers in the news and everything are so high that they're pretty much unimaginable arguably and yeah and then it kind of it's easy to become numb 
it's easy to become numb to those things. Maybe, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, this is just something that popped into my head. Maybe people are watching these horror movies to remind themselves of, to put themselves back and like shake, shake them into place and say people die. I don't know. Like, oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's, it's so easy to look at a number and dissociate from it. Um, but and to it's confront like if you, it, sure, you were going to say? Yeah, and if you don't really know those people, right. like, I know people who have gotten coronavirus, and I have people dear to me who have lost people to coronavirus. Yeah. I personally do not know anyone who has died from it. Mm -hmm. And while that does sort of, like, remove me from a certain sort of understanding of the reality of this, I'm still going to be like, okay, but it can happen at any moment. Sure. Yeah, I mean, my father, like, my father, he catches it. He's done for. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, like, um, you know, a lot of my relatives are in that very crucial age range of, like, above 65. Mm -hmm. So then. Right. I, yeah, I need to remain cautious. But also, I'm just remaining cautious because I'm not an asshole. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That You know, that, that makes me think about. So, um, I was, I, that's, that's a pretty good transition into the, um, the, the purge section, right? So, I'm, I'm thinking about, no, I mean that. I have that a lot to say. I know, I have a lot to say was... about, yeah, go ahead, go <laughs> no, ahead. yeah, you're good. Um, because, so I was listening to, I believe it was a radio lab, and it was a, about the different ways that this election could go. And different ways that um, it could try to be overturned in different ways, like um, you know, assigning different electors. Let's let's say Biden they, they roll one the Biden team rolls and says like we win the popular vote, um, and and there are still things being counted, but we have enough electors. And then the Trump team says we're gonna try to get different electors, and we're gonna argue for that. And then they roll, and if they get it, then that happens. And they were like four different games they played to see the outcome of um, peaceful overturn or not. So, um, and then there was a person, and this these were all like, Paul, they, they were like political analysts playing this game. So they were pretty Love like, it. familiar. Yeah, you should listen to it. They were familiar with the different ways that things could go, including like enacting the military against the people, um, protesting against um, like Trump trying to put in different electors, things like that. So when I was reading your section on the purge, it made me think about... Um, that I, 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 there's a new horror with those kinds of movies because the first one came out before there was too much of this uh, fear of the government. Well, um, maybe not. Yeah. Go um, ahead. <laughs> what, what The Purge does spectacularly, and it's honestly, out of all these movies, all the movies I saw, I would say that The Purge is the closest to reality when it comes to what it's trying to say um i mean like everyone has it's very a very valid sort of thing message that message that they're trying to convey but what the purge does is and especially what we've seen this year is way too fucking real um first off <laughs> purge uh yeah as i said it kind of it talks about race so well hmm. it talks about the dimensions of how race plays with this and this is where we're going to have to talk about some spoilers um, oh sure yeah that's fine and it's I'm, interesting. I'm gonna do like a spoiler thing before the episode please. cool yeah so 
Um, Alf, it's it's funny that how much I've talked about the purge. Um, so in the third section where I talk, so in my essay to sort of give context to the viewers, um, I separate into three parts. I did anthropology, like anthropologists in the field, which talked about um, the movies, the mummy, the island of Dr. Monroe. And the second time, the second part, I talked about um, students and how horrifying it can be to be an anthropologist in the field as a, as right. a student. And you talked about your own experience, which was really cool too. Yeah, um, Midsommar and Campbell Holocaust about like these students and how they like violate many codes of ethics because and how that sort of ends up with fatal consequences. And then the third section I talked about sort of American fears and specifically as a black person. Um, I was talking about the Jordan Peele movies because relevant, right. and yet out of <laughs> everything, I felt like The Purge was so relevant to sort of the fears of what if we remove the death denial fear? What if we, right. for one night a year, we accept death as it is and we celebrate it in a way to create more? But what The Purge series does, and it's why it's like my favorite horror series, it shows you how you get there. It shows you, and it's like the mm. kind of, what I found interesting was it was never really kind of like, there was a dispute of power, especially like how we are seeing it right now. But it right. was, America was at such a low point economically. And its relationship with the government was so tense that they were like, we will take anything. And then this new party, the new founding fathers came in and they're like, We'll, so we'll solve everything. And then they went to a primarily black neighborhood hmm. and to test the first purge. And this is all in the movie, The First Purge. And when they were not seeing the numbers that they wanted, they hired mercenaries to create more killings. Right. Which was then sort of like political theater. Mm -hmm. Now... I'm not sure if I answered your question, but kind of like it does lead to the topic of COVID. Uh-huh. Um, because so I'm one to sort of admit to my privilege because it does tie into this conversation. Um, so when COVID struck, I immediately moved to Houston to live with my dad and he's a criminal defense lawyer. He has his own uh, law firm. Um, and he has connections with some of kind of like the higher ups in Houston society. And I remember just sort of, he always came back after these nights out when he was dining with some of his friends. And there's always this one guy who always is like, no, we need to open every, we need to open everything back up. This is ruining our economy. People die. We have sure. to get over with, we have to get over it. And this guy is like in his 80s. So I was like, dude, you could die. But I've, I've <laughs> yeah. had I, the guy he was talking to, I had a bad run in with. So I was like, sure. Uh, okay. Um, but sort of, I felt like the purge was even more relevant because essentially what the purge was kind of doing and why the purge came around, like in a real way, not to sort of be like in the spiritual way that they explain of like, Oh, this is to cleanse all the evils from your spirit. Right. Econ politically and economically, the purge was created to take out people who relied on government funding. 
because the huh. rich the rich elites of the society are able to pay for protection they're able to pay for right like the lockdown homes lockdown and, the, homes. and the very expensive weapons but not just things like that. that they are able to pay big money and this is something that i you see in the second movie they're able to be like oh you know we also would like to participate in this holiday of sort of like a nationalistic um requirement so they will pay off the lower like poor people to kill them and they'll say you know mm -hmm. we'll give your money so much we'll give your money we'll give your family so much money if you just let if you right. just sacrifice yourself for our own spiritual cleansings fucking hate the word right. cleansing by the way it's too much it's too close i mean it's it's layered as hell yeah the word cleansing but essentially that's why the new founding fathers created the purge it was not for this spiritual thing as it then turned out by the time you get to purge election year which is many years down the road but it came around as a way to make sure that to sort of fix the economy and right, right. In, so i i'm i'm thinking and in the same way sort of when covid started hit and when you see a lot of these rich people say everything should open back up. Um, mm -hmm. They're all in safe places. It's, a sacrifice. it's, it's yeah. Trump being able to have the best steroids, the best medicine, while if someone who does not have such access, they're just going to die. But also it's those people who are just going to be like in, at, who are going to be at restaurants in retail who are on the floor with these businesses being the most vulnerable. Right. In a similar in a similar way, um, the people that are putting their bodies on the line are the people that would more likely to need assistance financially. Those people who are in retail, those people who are in healthcare, those people um, who are restaurant workers, service workers, etc. So like the, the when when you talk about sacrificing yourself for your family and, and monetarily in the purge, it feels very similar in that yeah. way. It's honestly I I want to hear what the creator of the purge feels about this. Like, oh, you haven't? I haven't read anything. Yeah, haven't, I haven't. Did, did you have you been doing any research I on that? Should I should have, but I've <laughs> been kind of like you know I've been with grad school kind of happening. I've been like sure. so disconnected. Um. So yeah, uh, James and Monaco, Monaco, if you ever listen to this, can you please just tell us how you feel about COVID <laughs> and how you feel like it would relate to the purge? Because please? that's a conversation that needs to happen of right. how do we interact when the government says you should die for your nation. By the time you see the first purge movie, not the first purge, which is a different movie, um... <laughs> then uh it's such a it's you know it's a white rich family and it's very just kind of like suburban people living through a night of murder how quirky um <laughs> and then by the time you get to the first purge which is the last movie released um back in 2018 then it's really all in your face of just like, nah, you want to see why this is like, why all this is happening. Yeah. It's they, they, it's like they put a lot of, it was all eyes on a most a primarily black community in New York. Like, and there was like, it's, it's interesting. They yeah. did. They literally said studies of like, okay, who would be the most successful? Oh, this 
group in Staten Island. This little area in Staten Island, that's where we need to have the first purge. And if they don't do as we want them to, we're going to incite it. And then that's how we're going to say this is a success. It is, it's, it's purge as a, if you look at the purge, not as a horror movie, but as a piece of political theater, it is one of the most uh -huh. genius films ever made. Right. And yeah. So in that, in that way, it's, it's almost like a rhetoric of death denial. Yeah. Uh, not de of that, not death denial. I'm saying it's a rhetoric of. It's I would I would challenge that and say it's death fet fetishization. Right. Oh God, it reminds me of a paper, another paper I once wrote where it's like, there is it's a physical, mental, emotional act, and I feel like, like it feels almost sexual if you have all of those three things acting all together. You're talking about the purging of it. Purging, killing during the purge. Okay. Yeah, death fetishization. That makes more sense to me. It's mm -hmm. interesting. And, you know, it's like... Shit. I, I, I'm almost <laughs> quite like... That's actually... I, I, I would love to have a talk with someone who studies, like, sociopathy, psychopathy. Mm -hmm. Or study who studies the brains of serial killers. Like, if there was one night a year... What would that do for these people who are just like holy killers? Yeah, people who have like violent antisocial personality disorder, things like yeah. that. I, I, I took a class um, called Huck Finn to Columbine. <laughs> um, Ooh, I, I like that class already. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it was a, um, a child and adolescent mental health studies class and it was comparing Huck Finn to Tom and Tom Sawyer to Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. So it was talking about like I know. I know. So oh it was my like, God. I love it. Was it. Like, um like talking about um the different types of killers there are and um people who are predisposed to violence but how that can be changed and whatnot. So like there there are people who are predisposed but there there is always always even if you have the quote-unquote serial killer disorder that eric harris supposedly had that charles manson supposedly had there is always a way to intercept that at a young age and you can't ever like train it out of them but it's like it is innate in there but they can be yeah. a functioning member of society and not hurt people yeah. if you train if you literally train them empathy if you train them right from wrong i've had a friend um, yeah I've, I've, i once have a friend who like kind of in the first couple of, like I saw her development when she had that. Yeah. And it's like, oh, and it's like, you know, it's like she was able to sort of help work that out. Oh, and yeah. It's, it's totally possible. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't I don't know if I mean, that would be an interesting study to see if like actually enacting it and that being OK, because maybe the wrongness of it is part of the doing of it. I'm not sure. But that also makes me think about another section of your essay. So I, I was reading about so like i'm also just a morbidly curious person so similarly how i went down the entire like rabbit hole um that led me to learn about cannibal holocaust um i also went down the jonestown rabbit hole which many yes! people have so <laughs> and um what i find most interesting about jonestown is like a lot of the ideals of the society are ideals that like us like leftist quote-unquote good people have so like or at least like self-prescribed meaning of of like racial equality and um like 
com like communism in a way like ideal society so it's interesting that um like jim jones went on to like in a way show death denial to his community say like there is a place after this that we are going and you will be rewarded mm -hmm. um and yet it's like the ideals that we align ourselves to um what what do you have to say i, I see you thinking i yeah i'm i'm thinking because now i'm like shit yeah i mean he was he, like i'm i'm looking back at how i wrote this um and <laughs> what did i say it's not even just a what did i say because now i'm just sort of thinking about like i think i in the paper i talked a lot more about sort of like what did we learn from this about mm. but like kind of only looking at jonestown as a whole not necessarily why was it why was there this mm, what in america led to this happening i mean hell i'm dejected by america even if even if biden wins i will still feel dejected and i will feel rejected sometimes sure. about what america is but at the same time what like you know, it's like, what would be like, uh, that's the thing. You know, I was reading it and I was like, holy fuck, I would have been so susceptible. Them. I yeah, would have I, been I one of been them. Susceptible to be part of that community. Totally. And it's also sad that the people who did die, people who believed him were really how we it's would describe good people. You know, 913 people who had a distrust of a government and then you have this person who is offering some sort of like spiritual validity spiritual right. sanctity and i mean i'm not i mean i'm a spiritual person i'm not a religious person but i right. often feel like if there was some sort of message and a group that would be like this you deserve better than this i mean yeah i mean so i found one quote from jones mm -hmm. um out of one blood, God made all the nations of the earth. And he that does not love a black man will burn eternity in hell. Holy crap. Th that's the, <laughs> uh, that is the line that I, when I read that, I was like, ah, I would have been <laughs> fucked. I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> Quality? Huh? Oh my God. Yes. Please give me more. Um, more please more um <laughs> that's really funny but yeah and it's like it makes me think about like the so when we think about the group suicide a lot of times people think about that awful audio clip people think about the images people think about the body discoveries right so the reality of the death but i i think about when going back to the death denial the appeal as well and the some of the fascination as well comes from i believe his prescription of death denial of you're not going to die when this happens this isn't happening like death isn't real when you're or with even me. like i'm trying or like i'm yeah me me like honestly i'm as i said it's been currently we are recording this it's late october i have not really looked at this since may so like it's been over five months and it's like sure. you know there was something about not being like not even just oh you won't really die with me but it's more of if you're with me death is not something to be afraid of okay and, sure it's not a fear of the unknown anymore 
Yeah, it's... Because part of the fear of death, I would argue, is fear of the unknown. It's fear of the unknown, and when you die, there is so much responsibility that you... And trauma that you leave onto others. Oh, gosh, yeah, sure. So, it. I mean, one of the best fucking things that I got from that I got from the book um here let me at least find it because I want to shout out this author um Salvation and Suicide Jim Jones The People's Temple in Jonestown by David Scheitzer um he introduced this concept of the six like traits of the cult and Uh sure one cults demand absolute obedience to norms and standards of behavior Cult members are closely supervised by cult leaders. Cults require members to do demeaning work. Cults discourage thinking and suppress accepted views of social reality. The cult experiences re- um, experience the cult experience represents a radical break with the member's past, and cults sever the member's ties with the larger society. And it's those last three that I feel like can really lead to suicide. Because then it's like you are rejecting the notion of death and you're rejecting the notion of what suicide does to a larger society. Hmm. Because now your society is within this small community. I find that because that maybe the first thing to be cult susceptible is to have a massive distrust. Mm. in the larger society sure that's sort of i mean yeah again it's to go back to why do we watch musicals why do we watch movies but I do, is break. it escapism though because why are yes we engaging no. with materials yes and no i would say <laughs> that are actively happening so many people have been watching uh uh that that um pandemic movie what is that called um pandemic movie i mean there are a couple of them there's like quarantine Um, uh it's 28 days later contagion god contagion Contagion i haven't i haven't seen that one like the ratings for contagion were through the roof that's not escapism why are we watching these movies right now it's to give us the feeling that we can get through it there's a happy ending at the end of these movies there's a happy ending. More of the world. The cold kills off all the aliens. Right. Um, like, like, let me think. Like, get out. The fam. Like, I mean, even though there are other people who partake it, the main, the central family dies. Yeah. And then I, oh God, I had a existential breakdown the other week because <laughs> I was walking through and I just thought about it. It was like if there was a war movie, and I'm in the war movie. I ain't the main character. I'm the extra who just runs in and gets shot down. Why do you say that? Why would Because it's it's kind of... <laughs> okay, why did I say that? I feel like it's because... <laughs> it's... Well, I don't... I mean, I'm not, I know if I'm the extra. Maybe I am kind of like an, a character who helps the main character... Or maybe there are many different kind of movies happening in with in this certain thing. But at the same time, you know, there's always going to be that split second to sort of um, certify that okay, our main character's in danger. Someone just died there, and it's sort of like it's like okay, but who is that person? 
who was their story? You know, often not like. But why don't you uh, think it's your story? Because you think you're dying first. Not dying first, (laughs) but sort of like. You think you're the first kill in the slasher. Listen, okay, the first kill being a black person—that is a discussion for (laughs) another day. Oh no! I mean, usually the first kill is two people who just had sex, but (laughs) that too, like. First off, <laughs> props to Cabin in the Woods, and I'm so oh, sad. Oh my I goodness! Felt like I'm so sad. I felt like I could not talk about it because it did not fit with any kind of overarching but thing Cabin I was talking about. Cabin in the Woods about. is brilliant. Cabin in the Woods is one of the best horror Wait, movies ever. Wait, but don't don't stop. I still want to know why <laughs> well, you don't I think feel, you're the main character. I feel like because first off i don't really have a lot of like training when it comes to all those kind of military things you know often you like have the grunt like the disgruntled veteran sure who okay. is like the main character i get that um and what about you're really good at hiding or you stay out of trouble that's also a possibility but then you also got like then i'm going to have to go to hunger games Foxface. In the first movie, she d- she was amazing at hiding, and yet she died because she ate poisonous berries. So it's well, always sure. kind of... So you think you're going to mess up? I am accident prone. <laughs> I think that kind of... I was always, I always feel like in, if I was in the purge, I'm not sure how I would handle. Sure. Which I feel like, you know, it's like if you're in... If you're watching a horror movie, if you're... I mean, in the same way, I feel like for us, for us as theater kids, whenever we watch the musical, we always sort of imagine ourselves in a certain role. Right. Like for me, it was always like growing up, I was like, damn, I want to be Simba. Yeah. That would be so That'd cool. That'd be so cool. And because we are given a story. Well, Simba's the main character. Simba's the main character, but that's the thing. I want to be Simba. Well... We're we're all gonna die, but I would love, to, I would watch the movie with you as the main character. So that's my two cents on that. There would be a lot of anxiety within it, which I think honestly makes it cool. Yeah, you know. I love Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> Listen, I have very positive feelings with Scott Pilgrim, except for the fact of how it treats women. Sometimes I feel like having a manic pixie dream girl. Like, while I have a lot of friends who are Manic Pixie Dream Girls, I'm like, you know. Right, right. Not, don't go with Scott, though. Right. You can't fix him. He, he's, <laughs> he's, he needs to fix himself, which is like, that's a climax when he finally accepts who he fucking is. Right. Um, as, as, we're, as we're drawing to a close, because I don't want to give my audio editor too much work, um, do you have any thank yous? about um anybody who helped you with your paper oh my i mean yes i so i will thank the following people very much my mother and father because they helped me deal with a lot of stuff like going through this and help me talk things through definitely um lawrence ralph and aisha alicio de jesus two professors who really helped me out when it came to like understanding what this was um jeffrey himple he was my advisor on this and he really helped me kind of figure out he he like when i was saying like i want to go a little more personal with my senior thesis and i didn't want Mm -hmm. to only be academic he was like love it go with it and then juliana turner is like 
love of my life who helped me out and kind of like really she's kind of like one of my i have like three solid rocks juliana turner emma grafoni nicole kagan you three are really just kind of like you always know how to talk me through my ideas um Alyssa stammer johan uh she's kind of been my horror best friend this year and i really appreciate <laughs> it katia strogadolf queen definitely the one who kind of told me to talk to some of my other professors and tara frederick who is just like my complete rock who i appreciate every day oh well that's lovely um great yay this podcast is produced by hickory playground founded by dylan tashton robert fuller and jordan maycant jordan is also our audio editor compositions are by lucky Sarudi. logos designed by morgan honeycutt my assistant in research is John Morgan Stern, and our digital marketing specialist is Simone Elhart. Thank you so much for listening.